Amen. Well, good evening, two cities. Um, Kyle just said a lot of nice things, but let me tell you, you guys, you know this, but you have some great pastors here, don't you? Great leaders. I mean, any man that would preach four times on a Sunday, like seriously, like I don't know, I, I don't, I'm just like kind of like seeing neon lights out there. I don't, I can't see anybody. I mean, this is different for me, let me tell you. And this guy does this every week. And, and I know it's because he just, what, what you guys say about every man, woman, and child having the opportunity to respond to the gospel message, I know that's his heart. And that's the sign of an awesome pastor. So treat him well, love him well. The way, the way he and David both speak of you guys is super encouraging for me to hear. I, I'm thrilled um, to, to just hear about what God's doing here at Two Cities Church. As Kyle said, I'm a church planter. We've been at it for two years, and we've got some decent traction going on. And, and we have a couple hundred people, and we're super grateful for, for all the souls that God allows us to minister to. Um, but what's going on here at Two Cities Church is inexplainable. It's undescribable. I mean, you guys are experiencing some massive momentum. And my goal tonight is, is to encourage you as we look at the life of Peter. Because here's what happens sometimes in the Christian life. Is, is we, we, can, we can grow complacent. We can grow content with, with what we've accomplished. But it's not about how you start. It's about how you finish, right? All right yesterday, I went on a run. And I tried to run, I don't know, 16 to 20 miles a week. And um, I was like crushing it through the first couple miles, and, and I, I kind of pulled a pulled a little hamstring, and I had to make like the call of shame to my lovely wife over there. She's with the handsome redhead, my son Judah, and um, I had to call her, and I'm like, "Hey, you got to come pick me up. I'm in trouble." And, and, and those first two miles, though, I was crushing it. I was going great, but I couldn't get the the job finished. And so, so I want to encourage you, um, through the life of Peter, we're going to be talking about spirit-filled boldness. And, and the reason why we, we're going to be talking about this important facet of the Christian life is because in order for you to be bold, you need to be spirit-filled. So that's what we're going to talk about in a minute. But really quickly, um, I, I, my wife and I, next Sunday, that's Miriam right there, um, we're going to be celebrating 18 years of marriage 18 years. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. So we're excited. And, and of course, tomorrow or the, tonight, we're going we're gonna to head out to Raleigh. And then tomorrow morning, we're going to wake up early. We're going to get on a jet plane. And we're going to go down to uh, Orlando. And we're going we're gonna to head over to Port Canaveral. And we're going to get on a cruise ship. Any cruisers out there? A few people have been on a cruise. And um, we have like one other experience with the cruise. And, and it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. Um, we went on, anybody ever go on a Holland cruise? Good, don't. Okay, like I think like you have to be 75 years old to get on the ship, okay? And so we get on this Holland cruise ship and, and like literally we were out playing basketball one afternoon on, on the basketball courts and we got kicked off the basketball court by, by some 85-year-old people, right? And so it was a really bad experience. I'm like, I don't know if I want to go on a cruise. I got seasick. Like we ran into a hurricane. It, it was horrible. But tomorrow we're going on this Royal Caribbean cruise ship. And it's got like a climbing wall, and it's got putt-putt, and it's got a flow rider. It has all these cool things. But size me up real quick. What do you think? Look at me. Come on. Look at me. All right. Well, what, do you, what do you think I'm most excited about? The food. Yes. The food. The food. Yes. And, and, and it's really interesting because we're, we're going on 18 years. And, and I remember it was even on our honeymoon. You know, honeymoons are supposed to be like awesome. And my wife realized really quickly I married a bad sinner. But I remember, like, I get hangry. Anybody get hangry in the crowd? 
You get hangry? Like, you just got to eat, and if you don't eat, like, like, some serious sin will be coming out of your mouth. You know what I'm saying? And that, that's me. And, 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 and my wife's like, you just need to eat. You just gotta, it doesn't matter what you eat. You just need to eat so that you can do what, what, what you desire to do and, and what's intended for you to do. And that kind of leads into the, the big idea for this evening on the life of Peter. And, and here's the big idea. If there's one thing that you remember from our, times in God, our time in God's word this evening, this is it. It's simply a fresh filling of the spirit results in bold living for the Savior. That's where we're going this evening. That's what I want you to take home with you this week. And not just this week, but in future weeks. If we're going to reach every man, woman, and child in this city, a fresh filling of the Spirit results in bold living for the Savior. In all the New Testament, this truth is probably most evident in the life of Peter. During the three years Peter ministered with Christ, he was a colossal failure. His greatest failure was the night Jesus was arrested before his crucifixion. Do you remember that story? After Christ was arrested, he, w- he was brought to the high priest's house or the courtyard. And, and Matthew writes in Matthew chapter 26, verse 69. You might want to go over there really quickly before we get into Acts 4. It's just a few pages back. But in Matthew chapter 6, it says Peter's sitting outside the courtyard. This servant girl comes up to him and she's like, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. And, and Peter, of course, he, he denies it. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I don't know what you mean. And, and so he's like, man, I better get out of here. And, and as he goes out to the entrance, another servant girl sees him, according to Matthew, verse 71. And, and she says to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. He's one of them. He's one of the followers, one, one of the Christ followers. He's of the way. And again, he denies it with an oath. He's like, I swear, I swear, I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. Then after a little while, verse 73 says, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. And when Peter hears that, he like totally goes off the rails. He starts cussing and swearing. And he's like, I don't know him. And of course, we know the story of the, the, the rooster crows, right? I mean, imagine being Peter. Like three hours before, he's in the upper room and, and, and Peter's envisioning himself standing boldly by Jesus' side. You remember that? He's like, I'm with you. And now he's too weak to, stay, to take a stand for Christ before a servant girl. I mean, Peter failed in a big time way. Ever find yourself in that position? You have an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like, 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 you know, like the sirens are going off in your mind. The lights are flashing. The Holy Spirit's like, witness. Share the word now. Tell them about Jesus. And, and you just, you don't have the boldness to share your faith. Have you ever been in one of those situations? I have. That was Peter. He failed in a big time way. And based upon that failure, any betting man with half a brain would say that Peter's future ministry would probably be a disaster. But if you were to study church history outside of the Apostle Paul, there's probably no man in human history that has had a greater influence upon the church than Peter. And the reason is because he was filled with the Spirit so that he could live boldly for the, for the Savior. 
So this evening, I want to share four ways we live boldly when we're filled with the Spirit. They're found in primarily in Acts chapter 4. Just for the context of the passage, we're going to go back to Acts, Acts chapter 3 some. But the first way we live boldly when filled with the Spirit is we preach faithfully in controversy. We preach faithfully in controversy. If you look back at chapter 3, this is when Christian persecution begins for the very first time. Peter and John, they're on their way to the temple at the hour of prayer. That would have been like the largest gathering, largest number of people at the temple in one time. They're on their way to pray, and they come across a man who had been, the text says, he's been crippled since birth. Now, imagine that for just a moment. Think of someone you know who has been disabled since, since either birth or childhood. And of course, the doctors have performed all the tests, they've conducted all the surgeries, but they're never able to heal the person. That was the situation for this 40-year-old man who, who's, who the text says, he's, he's begging at the gate of the temple. And of course, this man's, you got to get this, like this man's in a heap of trouble. I mean, his, his disability had, 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 had resulted in a lifetime of poverty. And while Peter and John, they're on their way to the temple, Peter looks the man straight in the eye. And in chapter 3, verse 6, he looks him straight in the eye and he says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now put yourself in that man's shoes for a moment. And he gets up. I mean, cue the music. Jump around, jump around. Remember that one? Jump up, jump up, and get like, like that. Like, and that's exactly what happens. It's exactly what happens. Verse 8, look down to verse 8 of chapter 3. It says, he, he enters the temple with Peter and John, and it says, leaping and praising God. Leaping and praising and of course, when you see, and everybody knew who this guy was, like they knew he was the guy that hung out at the temple. They knew he was the beggar. And of course, when they see this guy like jumping around and praising God, I mean, think that's going to attract a crowd? Yeah, it's going to attract a crowd. It attracted a massive crowd. And if you look at verse 11, it says that the crowd sees this miracle and, and they just rush Peter and John. I remember in 2004, my wife and I, we went to Bangladesh on a mission trip. We were praying about maybe possibly moving over there um, as missionaries. And I remember getting, getting off the airplane and, and leaving the airport. And Bangladesh is, one, is like the second poorest country in the world. And you would have thought we were like sunny and shared, the way people were like pressing in on us and leaning in on us. And, and they thought like, hey, hey, if we could just get one American dollar, and they're begging, they're asking for money, they're begging, they're begging, they're pleading. They think we have the solution to their problem. As the crowd began to gather around the two disciples and the lame man, Peter looks at this massive crowd that's begging, and he's like, verse 12 of chapter 3, he's like, why do you wonder? Why, why do you stare at us? We have no power. And Peter tells the crowd that the miracle that had just been performed, he says, it's in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and here's what you got to get. 
that reality sparked a massive controversy. Chapter 4, verse 1 tells us that some of the people who are part of the massive crowd, we're looking at verse 1, it says they were Sadducees. Now, Sadducees were, were sellouts to the Romans. They were the educated, wealthy elite. They controlled the religious and political life of the Jews. And, of course, the Sadducees were concerned that Peter's message would attract this huge following, it already is, and it would hurt their influence. I mean, these were some corrupt people. But not only that, the, the, the Sadducees were materialistic rationalists, meaning they denied the supernatural, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in evil spirits, they certainly didn't believe in Christ's resurrection. So this miracle that they had, that Peter and John had performed that would hurt their thing, combined with the sermon that Peter had just preached to the massive crowd in chapter 3, verses 11 through 20, regarding the persecution and resurrection of Christ, chapter 4, verse 2 says, says that the Sadducees looked down, it says they were greatly annoyed, greatly annoyed. Like, we, 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 we don't like these guys. They're, they're greatly disturbed. They were, they were greatly exasperated. They were annoyed that these uneducated men would promote blasphemy and disrupt the peace and speak as if Jesus was the Messiah. Look at verse 2. It says, they're greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus the resurrection from the dead. You got to understand something about that word teaching the people and proclaiming. Because the whole first point, it, it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you and you're like, man, I'm just a lay person in the pew and, and you're telling me that I have to preach faithfully in controversy. I thought you're the preacher. Isn't that your job? Well, well, well listen, that, that word proclaiming, it's this idea of, of, of Caruso, it's this idea of heralding, and it's like teaching and, and heralding, and we're all to be heralds of the gospel. So I grew up in Boston, and I read the Boston Herald every day, okay? And, and if you know Boston Herald, it's a newspaper. Nobody gets the newspaper now, but like the newspaper was like the big thing, right? You'd, you'd wake up, you'd grab your cup of coffee, you'd read the paper, you want to know what's going on, what's going on. You know, it's like, hey, hey here's what you got to know. Here's the big announcement. You got to get this. And that's what Peter and John are doing. They're, they're, they're teaching the people. They're, they're proclaiming. What is it they're teaching? What is it they're proclaiming? What is it they're saying? Everybody's got to get this. We got to herald this message. What are they heralding? That Jesus has risen from the dead. It's funny. The Sadducees were annoyed because they were standing on truth. We see that in our culture today, don't we, as Christians? People kind of get annoyed with us when we, when, when, when we hold a hard line on truth, don't they? I mean, if we faithfully preach what the Bible says about maybe gender or the sanctity of life or what constitutes a biblical marriage or even as we talk about salvation, people, people just, like, they're annoyed I read a statement recently by Chris Matthews. He's a political commentator on talk show host for MSNBC. He said, if you're a politician and believe in God first, that's all good. Just don't run for government office. Run for church office. It's like, yeah, it's fine for you to believe what you want to believe inside the walls of the church, but we're really not interested 
in this having an influence on how, how, how we ought to live. And of course, like as Christians, like we have a biblical worldview, like we have the Bible should be our lens on how we view life. The Bible is our filter for life. We need to have a hard line on truth. And, and here's the deal. When you faithfully proclaim this word, it's going to stir up a controversy. The gospel is an offense. When you faithfully preach the gospel, you will have fewer friends and a lot more foes. And real quick, let me just share five false gospels that we have to guard against proclaiming as, church, as a church. Because two cities, I mean, you've had this awesome start, right? And you want every man, woman, and child to respond to that gospel message. And, and that could happen. Like we, we, Sometimes we, we, we don't really believe that that could happen. But, but it could happen. And if we want that to happen, like we got to be true to the gospel. So what are some false gospels that the church will sometimes proclaims, proclaim in an effort to gain more followership? Well, there's the wide gospel, right? The wide gospel. Like whatever you believe is like fine. Whatever you believe. Like, you know, it's also called, like we consider the, the ecumenical gospel. And as long as you believe in one of the seven major religions of the world, as long as you believe in a higher being, you're good. It's a wide gospel, but, but what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, narrow is the gate, and wide is the path that leads to destruction. There's no such thing as a wide gospel. What's the second uh, false gospel? It's the works gospel. The works gospel teaches, like, if your good outweighs your bad, you're set. You, you'll, you'll have access into heaven, you'll be able to walk through the, the pearly gates. In fact, you might even meet St. Peter first, right? Your goods just gotta outweigh the bad. And so we have this expression at our church. We teach our people, like, we're not that great. That's one of our taglines. We're not that great. In fact, there's a guy in our, my small group, he's like, hey, I was thinking about making these, these uh, shirts. We'll put the church name and the logo on it, and on the back of it, we'll put, we're not that great. And I'm like, that's not a great idea. <laughs> But, but it's true, though. We're, we're, we're not that great. Like, the only re like, there's nothing good in us. Nothing good in us. I mean, we, we gain entrance into the kingdom of God based upon the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf at the cross of Calvary. Like, like we got to understand what the gospel is. I, like my son Judy, he's right there in the front row, and, and we do this thing, and, and, and we draw this little picture, and I put his name Judah on one side, and I'm like, and, and I'm like Judah, who are you? And he'll describe, I'm like, what are some bad things you've done? And he's like, ah, I've done this, 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 and this. And I don't want to say what they are right now since he's in the room, but, but he'll, he's pretty honest about himself. He knows he's a sinner because we're all sinners. I'm like, who's Jesus? And we put Christ on the other side, right? And, and, and like Christ is loving and, and Christ is truthful and Christ is honest and everything that essentially we aren't, we attribute to Christ. And, and so then we draw a little line and it becomes a cross. And I explain that for us to gain entrance into heaven and access a holy God, something like, like we're in trouble because our sin separates us from God. And what happened at the cross is when Jesus Christ went to the cross and paid for our sin by offering up his blood on our behalf. Like, like he switched places with us. And, and now, and now, a holy God, he, he sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ. He sees us clothed in Christ's righteousness. That's how we gain entrance before the Lord. 
And we got to be really clear on that gospel. Like, there's nothing that we do that's good enough. And then, of course, there's another false gospel. It's called the wealth gospel. Wealth gospel is what I get versus what I give up. And listen, when, when we come to, to saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, like, it's the best decision you could ever make. But hear me on this. If you're just trying to, like, if you're exploring the Christian faith, I want to be brutally honest with you in this moment right now. This will not be your best life now. In fact, your life might get really, really hard. James, the half-brother of Christ, talks about this thing called trials, and, and God puts trials in our life, difficult times in our life. I remember my wife and I, after our first like six or seven years of marriage, it was like smooth sailing. Everything was going right. After two years, we got our house. After four years, had our first kid. Then after like 27, every 27 months, another boy, another boy, another boy, four boys. But after about, I don't know, maybe year seven or eight or something like that, her dad passes away unexpectedly. Shortly after that, she has cancer. Then, then we're, we're, we're kind of recovering um, for those, those two things right there. What's, what's the, the third big thing? I don't even know where I'm going with this. It's like the fourth time I've preached this today, and I'm like, I'm, I'm fried. But, but something else bad happened. Just trust me. Uh, yeah, you're like, yeah, whatever, bud. But seriously, I mean, life was rough for us. Life was rough for us. It was difficult. It wasn't a good time. And you just kind of sprinkle in all the other normal things of life, like your air conditioner goes out, and all, all the normal things on top of it, on top of the big things. And the Christian life can be really, really hard. And, and the reason why some people walk away from the faith is because like, we haven't really talked them through. Like When you surrender yourself to Christ, you're making him both Savior and Lord of your life. You're going to submit to his will for your life. What's another false gospel? It's the welfare gospel. What's the welfare gospel? Welfare gospel, and listen, I'm not against these things. Our church supports these things. Like We're, we're all about the crisis pregnancy centers. We send them money every month. Um, we're, we're all about digging, digging wells. We're all about ha people having clean water. We're all, we're all about helping hurting people. As Christians, we, we should love hurting people. Don't mishear me here. However, 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 many Christians are more passionate about their social issue than they are the gospel. And listen, like, we want to help people. I want to help people. We should help, want to help as many people as possible. However, like, we need to be clear on the gospel because the gospel is the difference between life and death. Then there's this other gospel called the wrath gospel. It's another false gospel. The wrath gospel is like all hellfire and brimstone. It's like when, when, when people are scared into a salvation decision. And we, and we forget to mention that, hey, when, when you come to Christ, uh, when, when you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, it's not about a free ticket out of hell. It's about living in relationship with him. I mean, you're you're, you're going to have a relationship with the Lord. You're going to want to know him. You're going to want to love him. You're going to want to serve him. Out of gratitude for what Christ has done on the cross, you're going to want to live for him. I mean, we need to preach that message faithfully, but get this, when you preach that message faithfully, it's going to stir up some controversy. And Peter and John, they find themselves in that situation. Like, they're faithful to the message, and notice what happens. Verse 3, look at verse 3 of chapter 4. It says, they were arrested. They were arrested. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm like, man, I've given up my life for you, Lord, and, and I'm, I'm like going to the hard place and I'm sharing my faith, and now I'm arrested? 
I don't know about you, but maybe I'm like, maybe, maybe this, is this really worth it? Would you find yourself maybe asking that question? I don't know if this is worth it. Like, I'm doing everything right. I'm checking all the boxes. Is it worth it? Yeah, it's worth it. How do I know that? Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. This is awesome. It says, 5,000 men were saved because of Peter's boldness. 5,000 men were saved because of Peter's boldness. I mean, that doesn't include women and children. When we tell the story about, about Jesus feeding the 5,000, remember when you, if you grew up in church, you heard that story like growing up. It's one of the first stories we hear. And we talk about the feeding of the 5,000, and we're like, oh, well, there are 5,000 men. And if you consider women and children, it could have been as many as fifteen to 25,000 people that he fed, right? Well, the same is true here. I mean, at least 5,000 men came to Christ, possibly... 10, 15,000 people came to Christ. I mean, this is, I mean, this is mind-boggling. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine, like, you proclaiming the gospel message? And, like, we were just pretty excited about, about this person coming to Christ last week, right? Isn't that awesome? That's awesome stuff. But can you imagine if, like, 10 or 100 or 1,000 or, like, 5,000 people got saved like that? Wow. Well, 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 uh, how does that happen? How does that happen? How, how, well, simply this, write this down. Faithfulness yields fruitfulness. Faithfulness yields fruitfulness. Peter was faithful. He was faithful to the message. But in order for, for these people to respond, he had to be faithful to proclaim. A fresh filling of the Spirit results in bold living for the Savior. We must preach faithfully during controversy. Notice the second way we live boldly when we're filled with the Spirit. We speak graciously during difficulty. We see that in verses 5 through 12. The next day, Peter and John find themselves in a tense situation. Verse 5 says that rulers and elders and scribes are gathered together. That was the, the ruling body of Israel. It was Israel's supreme court. There were 71 members, including the high priest. Verse 6 mentions a guy named Annas the high priest. He was actually the former high priest, but, but the high priest, it's kind of like presidents in America. Like, like even our, our past presidents, we still call them like President Bush, President Obama. Okay, so, so this guy, Annas, he was a former high priest, but he was the most influential person in all of Israel, even at this time. And so the entire priestly family, they're all present, and these people are all about persecution. And so they form this semicircle of like 71 people, and they just start grilling Peter and John with questions. And in verse 7, notice the first question they ask. They're like, by what power, by what power, and by what name did you do this? Like, who do you, who do you think you are? You know, you use that one with your kids sometimes. Who do you think you are doing this? This is like a stern rebuke. And what I, what I love this is when you're filled with the Spirit during times of difficulty, you, 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 like, like Peter was once a fighter, he was like chopping off ears before, right? But now, notice, he, he doesn't defend himself. I don't know about you, but when people are coming at me, I'm kind of like a fighter. I grew up in Boston, I'm Irish. Like most parents, like when their kid's like six years old, they're like, hey son, do you want to play t-ball? You know what I'm saying? Like my parents were like, hey, do you want to box? when I was six. So I started boxing when I was six. I was a boxer. I still love to fight. It's just like I'm an Irishman. We're kind of stupid like that. You know, we like to fight, like to box. And, and, and that was kind of like Peter. If you know anything about Peter, you study the life of Peter, like he was a fighter, right? But Peter, like now that he's spirit-filled, he, he doesn't defend himself. And he gives a gracious 
explanation. And the first thing he does is he honors their authority. Look at verse 8. He says, rulers of the people and elders. Now, these people, they had no power and authority when it came to spiritual matters. I mean, they had put themselves in the place of power. But they, they were not true followers of Christ in the law. And in spite of, of their flaws, though, and there were many for this group of people that were attacking Peter and John, Peter recognizes their God-ordained governmental authority, and he's incredibly gracious. So notice what Peter does next in verses 10 through 12. And this is after having a night to sleep on everything that's going on, you know? Ever yeah, find yourself in a tough situation, like, and, and like you wake up in the morning, you have like this whole new perspective. Has that ever happened to you? Well, well, here's Peter and John. They have a night to sleep on it. They know they're in trouble. The temptation would have been to, to like just kind of back down a little bit here. I mean, they're, they're in trouble. They're coming at them. And, and if you, again, if you know Peter's history, back in the courtyard, like he totally backed down. But this time things are different. Verse 8 says that he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And as he stands before the same men that arrested, tried, and murdered his Lord, notice what he says. Notice what he says starting in verse 10. He says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, the, the Holy Spirit not only empowers Peter to, to live graciously by calling, like respecting the authority during, the, the, during that time of difficulty, but the Holy Spirit enables Peter to share the gospel of grace. That's what you're seeing there. I mean, that, that, that's all gospel. You see, a, a fresh filling of the Spirit results in bold living for the Savior. And, and here's Peter. He's speaking graciously to his enemy. I mean, that is the epitome of loving your enemy. When you can give your enemy the gospel, I mean, that is loving your enemy. So, so this evening, like, like, who are the enemies in your life? Maybe it's like that person that just drives you nuts nuts on social media, you know? You have one of those on your social media feed? That could be considered your enemy. Maybe, maybe it's your, your, the, the widow, old neighbor, who's just bitter at everything about life. But who are your enemies that you must winsomely win to Christ? Notice the third way that you will live boldly when you're filled with the Spirit. You will stand firmly against adversity. You see that in verses 13 through 22. Sadly, the, the Sanhedrin were more fearful of losing their position than they were their eternal destination. So rather than calling for salvation, they, they continue the interrogation. And when, when they saw the disciples' boldness, they're astonished because like, these are uneducated guys. Uneducated meaning they had no proper training in rabbinic theology. They, they were common men. They were fishermen. They were not supposed to have the courage or the confidence when standing before the Sanhedrin, the most powerful people in the country. I mean, have you ever found yourself, found yourself in one of those types of situations when you're like, 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 this is like a power group of people, and I'm in the middle of it, and I don't even want to be here right now. I remember this one time I'm at my buddy's wedding. My, my buddy, he was a class act, Nate. 
go to his wedding. He was like senior class president at Stanford University. He goes to work in New York, and like, you know, he's, he's just a super successful guy. My wife and I, we go, we go to his wedding, and we find ourselves at this table with a bunch of people that we don't know. And, and they're just kind of like going, you know how it is at weddings and stuff. It's like we're all introducing ourselves and like they're just like talking about themselves. And like, yeah, I went to Harvard and I did this and I went to Brown and I do this. And like, and I'm just like the whole time I'm chewing on my salad and I'm like, oh, please don't ask me what I do or where I went to college. I'm just going to keep my head down and keep eating the salad. And so finally they come around to me. They're like, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a pastor, went to Bible college. What? Have this feeling of inferiority in the moment. You ever feel that way? But by the end of the night, it was super, super cool, man. I just started praying. I'm like, God, you put me in this weird situation right now, and these people are lost. And I started praying. By the end of the night, I'm sharing the gospel with some people in the table. The feeling of inferiority and wanting to remain silent, that should have been Peter and John during that moment. But what do they do? They, 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 they speak with poise and authority, and they don't fold under the pressure. Listen, God will use anybody for his glory. Saul memorized the whole Old Testament. I mean, the guy had a PhD. Luke, medical doctor, he was an MD. Matthew, tax collector, he's the CPA. Peter, Peter Fisherman, GED guy. God used incredibly for his glory. So, so you might want to write this down. God uses ordinary people for his extraordinary purposes. You got to get that. God uses ordinary people, ordinary people like me, ordinary people like you, ordinary people who maybe, maybe in the world's eyes we haven't accomplished a whole lot, but he uses ordinary people who are filled with the spirit to, to accomplish extraordinary things for the kingdom. And as the Sanhedrin, though, they're, they're, they're witnessing the boldness of these men that, w- that was present through the Spirit. It, it dawns upon them that, that, hey, these are the same people that had been with Christ. And they're now doing what Christ did during his earthly ministry. They're, they're confronting the religiosity. They're performing miracles. They're, they're kind of driving us nuts. Remember, they're annoyed. So according to verses 16 and 17, the Sanhedrin, they gather together behind the scenes. They're like, like, we need a meeting, meeting, time out, meeting. <laughs> you guys stay here. So, so the semicircle like, gathers together. They know they're in trouble. In verse 18, they, they charge Peter and John to not speak the name of Jesus. They're like, hey, hey, you got to get this straight, boys. No more Jesus talk. You get that? No more Jesus talk. Deal? Deal? They're trying to manipulate the situation. Do anything to stifle the name of Christ. But notice what Peter and John didn't do in verse 20. I love this about Peter and John. They don't call for a mutiny when they have the crowd on their side. Because remember, the crowd's pressing in. The crowd is making much of Peter and John. They don't call for a mutiny. They could have. They have the numbers. They didn't question the Sanhedrin's integrity, which they could have. I mean, these are corrupt leaders. What do they do? They stand firm against adversity. And they respectfully say, look at verse 20. It says, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Isn't that, like, that's so winsome and so gracious. After a night of reflection in a jail cell, they, they, they stayed true to their convictions. Previously, Peter denied him. John left him. But now the power of the Spirit has emboldened them to stand firm. 
And if the Holy Spirit can empower Peter and John to stand firmly against the political religious authority of Israel, think about that. If the Holy Spirit can empower them to do that, he can empower you to take a stand for Christ, student, at your school when people are mocking you because you believe in the Creator. He can, he can give you the confidence in the boldness worker to share the gospel when you're at the cafeteria. When people say, what's your take on religion? All of this, though, raises an interesting question. And we talk about standing firm, and, and when do we take a stand? And I know recently, I, I believe it was last week, I listened to a great message by Kyle. He talked about like, you know, placing ourselves under civil authority. But when do we take a stand? When do we take a stand? Well, number one, we take a stand when obeying the authorities requires us to disobey God. We always take a stand when obeying the authorities requires us to disobey God. Second, we always take a stand when obeying God requires us to disobey authorities. But third, we take a stand when we see those who cannot stand for themselves. This is super important. The physically or mentally sick, the orphans, those being taken advantage of by others, the unborn who literally cannot speak for themselves, need to take a stand for them. So defend the gospel, yes. Stand for the unborn, yes. Intervene when we see the weak being taken advantage of, yes. Boycott every single business that isn't run by Christians, uh, probably not. But take a stand. Be bold. Notice the fourth way you will live boldly when you're filled with the Spirit. You will pray fervently in tranquility. I love verses 23 through 31. Love this. After the trial. Everything's, everything's done. These guys realize, like, we have nothing on these guys. And, and in fact, if we arrest them, like, this, this, this huge crowd, it's going to create an uproar. We, we could, our, our political careers could be toast. So they do the expedient thing. They're like, all right, we're going we're to release Peter and John. What do Peter and John do? They immediately return to their church family to report what's taken place with the Sanhedrin. But notice the first thing, or first notice what they didn't do. <laughs> if I'm Peter and John, I would have been like, man, I probably would have been complaining about my circumstance. Maybe, maybe bashing the governmental authority. But probably more likely, I would have been kind of like questioning God. Like, man, I can't believe God did this. Like, I've committed my life to him, and I've done all these, these like, like I've, I've, I'm like, I'm sold out, man. I'm sold out. And like, like, he puts me in this tough situation, and I've been in jail, and I've been questioned, and these people are coming at me. That's not Peter and John. Just the opposite is true. Notice what they do. They, they pray. They pray fervently during tranquility. Like, like, and, and here's what you got to get real quick. Like, the oppression is gone. The oppression's gone. It's smooth sailing now. There's no reason for them to pray. It, it's kind of like my prayer life is often the greatest during difficult seasons of life. Like, like I told you about what was going on with, with my family for a little while. Like I had like calluses on my knees from praying, you know what I mean? It's like, you're praying, you're praying, you're praying because life's hard. But the moment like, like it gets a little bit smoother, like, oh, we're good. Don't have to pray anymore. Not Peter and John though. They're free from the persecution. First thing they do is they start praying. 
And their prayer is rooted in three things. This is really important. This is a really great way to pray right here. Notice this. Their prayer is rooted in three things. Number one, their prayer is rooted in God's sovereignty. We see that in verse 24. Verse 24 says, they lifted their voices together to God and said, sovereign Lord, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That phrase, sovereign Lord, though, key in on that for a moment. That word Lord is used only five times in the New Testament. It means absolute master. This was the term that was used for a slave owner. Peter and John, they're aware of the reality that the Lord is their ultimate authority. They're placing their confidence in God's sovereignty even during the most difficult times of uncertainty. And they're not out of the woods yet. They're not out of the woods. They, they knew, we're going to see this in the prayer in a moment, they knew more oppression was going to come, but they're like, hey, you are sovereign, you are Lord, and we place ourselves under you. That's a great way to pray. Notice the second thing that prayer is rooted in. It's rooted in Scripture. I love verses 24 through 28 because they're praying Psalm, or they're really praying Psalm 2, verses 1 through 2. Specifically, they're bringing to mind the promises that God has declared that Jesus wins. That's a good thing to remember when you're praying. Jesus wins. The Lord's going to be victorious over all the nations. They're like, like, why do these people plot in vain? Why do the Gentiles rage? Or why do the nations rage? They're, they're praying scripture. They're reminding themselves of, 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 of truth. And listen, like truth is key if you want to live boldly. Like we need to be continually reminding ourselves of the truth of God's word and pray that truth. Notice the third thing their prayer is rooted in. It's rooted in suffering. It's rooted in suffering. At the conclusion of the, prayer, pre, of the prayer, Peter and John and their friends, they make their very first petition. I don't know about you or what your prayer life is like, but usually I start with petition. I'm like, Lord, I need this, and I need this, and I need this, and I need this, and can you do this too? But their first petition is at the very end, but they don't ask for protection. They don't even ask for the persecution to stop. Notice what they ask for. They ask for boldness. Verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. I love this because what it reveals something about Peter. Peter had a self-awareness. He knew his propensity. He knew his temptation. He, he knew that, that, hey, I need boldness because I remember what I did before and I don't want to be that guy anymore. But get this, there's something else he knew. And that this church knew. He also knew that the persecution wasn't going to stop. Isn't that interesting? He knew like this is just the beginning of a lifetime of persecution. And, and we know his end story. Like he, he was crucified upside down. You see, suffering is unavoidable for Christians who proclaim the gospel. The gospel is an event. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul writes, will be persecuted. In two cities, if you desire to live boldly, you will suffer greatly. So don't root your prayers in the American dream. Root your prayers in asking God to give you the boldness to suffer for, you, for the Savior. God, help me not to weaken in my witness. God, help me not to compromise when it comes to truth. God, empower me to be the evangelist that you want me to be. What I love about Peter is that when he was filled with the Spirit, he valued kingdom expansion over personal fortune. When we pray this way, here's what you get. When, when we start praying that way, God shows up in a powerful way. Look at verse 31. It says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together 
was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You gotta write this down, prayer precedes power. You want power in your life, prayer precedes power. They had power after they prayed. Prayer precedes power. And when Peter prayed, the place was shaken. They're filled with the Spirit. They spoke God's word with boldness. And listen to cities. Every day, we have the choice to do ministry through self-sufficiency or spirit dependency. We have that choice every day. Self-sufficiency or spirit dependency. And my prayer for this church, my prayer for my church, is that as we seek to reach the triad for Christ, is that we will follow the example of Peter. Peter didn't hold to his failure. And maybe even this evening, maybe you're, maybe you're holding on to some shame due to past failures. Maybe you failed as a dad or to disciple your family or you failed as an evangelist in your past job. Listen, Satan's goal is to keep you right there. He wants to keep you ineffective for the kingdom by, by keeping your failures in front of you. But the glorious thing about the gospel is that Jesus takes what is broken and what is marred and he completely restores it into something good. Isn't that awesome? One of my friends, he bought the 64 Mustang. And, and the thing was a piece of junk. I mean, it had no windshield. All the seats were ripped. It was rotted out. It was rusted out. I mean, it, the, the engine wouldn't turn. I mean, it was of no use. So my, my friend, he completely disassembled the car. For two and a half years, he, he, he took it on as a project. He starts working on it. To, disassembles the car to the very last nut and bolt of the car. Completely restores it. And now it's this amazing showpiece. And what, 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 what I love about that little car illustration right there is, is that's what Christ does with his children. Now, maybe in the past, maybe we haven't been that great at evangelizing. Maybe we haven't really been great at being bold for the Savior. But listen, upon salvation, listen, our calling is from God. Our identity is in Christ, but our power is of the Spirit. And upon salvation, like the, the Holy Spirit comes upon us. We need to position ourselves to experience the Spirit's power. And when he's living inside of you, he empowers you to live boldly for the Savior. Right now, if you desire a fresh filling of the Spirit so that you can live boldly for the Savior, let's pray together. Let's, let's talk to him for a moment. Let's ask him to fill us in a way so that we will be bold for Christ. And that we will witness in a way that we've never witnessed before. And that we will see this church grow exponentially with new conversions. New worshipers of the Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you this evening. We thank you that you have called us out of darkness and into life. We thank you, Jesus, that our new identity is in you and the Father receives us as holy. The Holy Spirit, we want to talk to you for a moment because we want your power. We know that we've sinned against you. Sometimes we quench you. We resist you. There are times where we even grieve you. But Holy Spirit, we need you to change us. We want the nations to come to Christ, and we want to start with our city right here. And it's only through you that we can, we can worship Christ and walk with Christ and, and, and witness for Christ. So come, Holy Spirit. Come and fall afresh upon us. Fill us with your presence so that we can live for the glory of God by speaking of his fame so that more worshipers will come into the kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.